Well, thank you for that excellent music today. Uh, I suppose all of you noticed we were singing Getty songs, so some of you that might say, well, I'm not sure who the Gettys are, their songs, we've been singing them for a long time, you just may not have noticed. So we hope you're signing up for the uh, concert at the end of September. Uh, the Gettys are responsible more than anybody else in recent times for reintroducing the congregational singing, which I believe is the, the apex of all singing in the Church of Christ. So uh, I hope you can come and enjoy that concert together as we worship the Lord at that time. We're in Psalm 13 today, uh, doing something a little different, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Psalm 13 and 27. The poet Annie Johnson Flint wrote these words once, Pressed out of measure and pressed to all length, Pressed so intently it seems beyond strength, Pressed in body and pressed in soul, Pressed in the mind to the dark surges roll, Pressure by foes, pressure by friends, Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends, Pressed into loving the staff and the rod, Pressed into knowing no helper but God. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like life is this one big pressure point in which uh, there's all, all your whole life is wrapped around stress of one kind or the other? Well, the writers of the Psalms knew something about that. They had days and weeks, months and even years sometimes, I believe, when their life was under those kinds of pressures. These are, their experiences and their struggles have been recorded in God's Word for us that help us to guide us to God in the times of our pressures and our sufferings and our struggles. Uh, we have before us today then two psalms we're going to look at in particular, both written by David. Uh, they're uniquely placed in the scriptures, I believe, to, to provide us strength during dark times and to help us when we're in despair. And to that end, I, I trust we will gain much today. This is written for people who are at the end of the rope, who are coming to the end of the run, in a sense. They don't know where to turn, and we get much from the psalms at that point. We were in 1 Corinthians last week, uh, as you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we're moving through and almost finished with 1 Corinthians, and you were expecting me to go on with that great chapter on the resurrection, and we'll return to that next week. But uh, last week we saw that uh, there is a, there's hope that is found in three realities in that passage of Scripture, the reality of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the reality of the grace of God. And without those three realities, we really have no hope in this life or in the next to come. But there's one more hope that I want to talk about today. Uh, what happens when, uh, when people believe in the gospel and they believe in the resurrection and they believe in grace? They've embraced all those things and still their back is against the wall. They still are struggling mightily. They still don't know where to turn in their lives. And they're just about coming to the end of where to turn. Their hope is exhausted. What happens to people like that? Well, we find a fourth reality that I want to focus on today, the reality of the person of, of God himself that is needed for us to have hope in this life and the next. Uh, I remember at, at Six Flags, one of my least favorite rides years ago was a ride I believe called Tom Twister. Uh, any of you ride Tom Twister? You would remember it if you did, probably. It's just a big saucer. And you got in that thing and it started out and started going faster and faster and faster until you basically were impelled against the wall. You could not get off no matter how strong you were, no matter how much you tried. You were stuck on that wall and you couldn't get up. 
And, and that, that was the way many people feel. The only thing that, they, they stopped that ride some years ago because the only thing that it did allow people to do is throw up. <laughs> you know? And I think after just about every ride, somebody threw up. And so they said, you know, this isn't maybe the best thing out here. Uh, but I do remember thinking, you know, you're, you're, you're pressed against that wall. You, you can't get off the wall. You're stuck, no matter how hard you try. And that's how some people feel. At, at times, I think all of us feel that way. But sometimes people feel that for long periods of time. And some of you are feeling that right now. Uh, you believe in the gospel. You believe in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You believe in the grace of God that saved you from your sin. But you can't get off the wall. You're stuck. Where do you turn? Where do you go? Is there hope for that kind of person? That kind of Christian? Well, let's follow the trajectory of these two psalms today. And, this, and giving us this fourth reality of the person of God, which gives us the hope that we need. So Psalm 13, I want to first of all, with the psalmist, paint a picture, a description of despair. Let's start with where he's at. We find, first of all, there's anxiety and fear that's dominating this man's life. And this is David. And keep in mind that David is the best of the best. Now we know his faults, we know his sins, but we also know he's a man after God's own heart. And to my knowledge... No one else in Scripture has given that description. This is a man of God, even with all his faults and problems. But he's depressed. He's despairing. He's full of anxiety. Look at verse 1. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? As this man confesses his situation here, there's a fourfold how long that uh, describes where he is and how he feels. He feels, look at this, verse 1, he feels forgotten by God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels abandoned by God. How long will you hide your face from me? He feels alone in his grief. How long will you take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day long, all by myself, grieving over my own sorrows and sins? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? He, he, he feels exalted by, over by his enemies. He's under attack by people. There are few things in life, my friends, that is more painful for the believer than to contemplate the possibility that God no longer cares. That God is, has abandoned you. That he has walked away from you. There's very few things, if anything, more hopeless, more despairing, more painful than that. David in this passage, first of all, looks at God and, and, and as the source of his troubles. Then he looks at himself, and then he looks at his enemies. Spurgeon said, God's temporary absence. Now remember Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest of all preachers. He said, God's temporary absence brings his people into the very suburbs of hell. This is exactly how David felt. And so as he feels this way, we're not surprised that he cries out in anguish in verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies will say I've overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Notice his cries here. For all of his complaints and all of his concern, David knows that, uh, that God is still there. And so he cries out to God even in that. And notice his cries. There's three of them. First of all, he cries out, consider or look. Lord, take, take a look at me. 
Uh, take, don't, give me the time of day. Don't just look away. Don't, don't look at other things. Look at, look at me, God. Consider me and my predicament, my pain, my, my anguish. Secondly, answer me. God seems to be silent to David. He wants an answer. Why? Why are all these things happening to me? Why is my life like this? I mean, I've tried. I've done my best. I, I, I've, I've done good things in my life, and I've read the Bible, and I've gone to church, and I've done this and that, and I'm going through this hard time. Why? Answer me, God. And then thirdly, and probably the most important of all, is enlighten me, Lord. Give me understanding. I don't get it. I need some insight. I need to know why I'm struggling the way I am struggling. If God doesn't come through to rescue David, three terrible things he sees happening to him. First of all, he will die. Look at verse 3. He says, Consider me, consider it, answer, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Now David couldn't control his death, or when he would die. He wasn't suicidal. But he felt like he was going to die. He, this is killing me. You ever feel like that? This circumstance, this trial, this pain is killing me. I'm going to die here. Secondly, he says that he will be overcome by his enemies. My enemies shall say I have overcome him. And on top of that, the thirdly, the enemies will rejoice. They will mock him. And my adversaries will say, rejoice when I am shaken. They'll see him as a laughing stock. The gloom has enveloped David. It is so thick, he can't see beyond it. I knew a person that was very dear to me once who was grieving over the loss of her husband. And she was in deep, deep depression. And after she came through, she told me, you know, at one point I felt like I was in the deepest of all tunnels. A deep well, enveloped with darkness. And all I could see, all the hope I had was a little pinhole of light at the top. Can Christians get to this place? David did. Some of the greatest Christians have ever walked the planet have been there. Charles Spurgeon again says, I am the subject of depression, of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. John Bunyan who wrote The Great Pilgrim's Progress Greatest allegory ever written. And by the way, I, I've got several copies of that and they're all gone. So if you look in your library this afternoon <laughs> and you see Pilgrim's Progress, check the name on it. I got, I got labels on the side. I got names in it. I got writing underneath them. If you have my book, bring it back. Lay it somewhere in the foyer. No questions asked. No fingerprints will be given. Go take it. I want my books back, all right? But nevertheless, uh, Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, is the greatest allegory ever written by a human being. And the illustration that is most referenced by Christian leaders and preachers and so forth is his story about the sloth of despond. Now, the sloth of despond, he and his buddy were walking along, doing well in their Christian experience, and they came along this, this sloth, this bog, and they fell into it unbeknownst to them and they couldn't get out. They were, they were sinking like quicksand into this sloth, sloth and they could not get out. And why is that particular illustration so referenced in the writings and the sermons of great Christians? Because so many of them have been there. That's why. 
Not just the average person or, or the struggling Christian. The leaders of the Christian church throughout the ages have struggled with those areas. The sloth of the spawn. They know it as David knows it. Can a Christian get here? Yes. Yes. But we are not without hope. So what does David do in verses 5 and 6? We find him reaching out for hope at this point. Verse 5 says, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Spurgeon again says, and I'm referencing Spurgeon because his greatest work, in my opinion, is his commentaries on the Psalms, about seven volumes, The Treasury of David. They're excellent. And he says concerning this, David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He may be right about that. David goes from, from sighing to singing here, but I don't want you to misunderstand. These references into his diary didn't happen immediately and overnight. This is a process. David didn't, David didn't eat a snicker bar and suddenly start rejoicing. This is a process. But he came to that place in due time in which his eyes begin to open. He's asked God to give him insight and God has answered. And what does he see? What does his eyes now see, his spiritual eyes? I want you to focus in on that wonderful word, loving kindness. I have trusted in your loving kindness. Now, if you've been here in the past when I preached through Psalms and so forth, you know this is one of my favorite Hebrew words in all the Bible. It's a Hebrew word, hesed which is translated various ways. The King James uh, translates it mercy. The NIV translates it unfailing love. The New American Standard does the best, in my opinion. It gives us an old-fashioned word that nobody uses, but it captures the heart of the meaning. It means love. It means kindness. It means mercy, all rolled into one word, one of the most precious words you'll ever grasp in the Scriptures, the loving kindness of God over 250 times is found in the Old Testament scriptures. It means loyalty, as Ryrie tells us, loyalty, steadfast, faithful love. It stresses the idea of belonging together with someone in a love relationship. It's a tender, sweet love between us and our Savior. What did he see that he hadn't been seeing in his sloth of despond? The loving kindness of God. His eyes had been open, and he asked his eyes to be open. He didn't buck up. He didn't resist. He called out to God, Lord, enlighten me. Let me see. And what does he see? He sees the loving kindness of God. When he saw that, his heart changed. When his heart changed, his thoughts changed. When his thoughts changed, his mood began to change. He knew that God's hesed, his loving kindness, could be trusted even if, now get this, even if at that moment he did not feel it. See, that's what faith is about. Faith is believing God when we don't feel it. And he may not have felt it, but he knew it was true and he began the process of changing him. He once feared that God had abandoned him, but now he recognizes that God's hand is everywhere. Every line of these two verses Talk about David and his relationship with the Lord. Look at them with me. I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. He has dealt bountifully with me. He is now seeing God at work in his life. 
He has learned that God can be trusted in the dark. A little child, a little girl, steps into the darkness. She's afraid. She can't see. She doesn't know what's out there. She's fearful. But there beside her is her mother. And she reaches over and she grabs her mother's arm or hand or leg. And now the, dis the despair, the fear begins to dissipate. Not because anything changed in the darkness. But because the mother is there. There's David. In the midst of his darkness. In the midst of his gloom. Things begin to change when he realizes that God is there. And he can be trusted. How could that happen? Go over to chapter 18 for just one moment. Another psalm of David. Just turn the page. If you have one of those devices where your phone... Your, your scripture is on your phone. It'll probably take you two or three minutes to find it. <laughs> but the rest of us can turn in our real Bibles to Psalm 18. Look at what he says in the first three verses. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. My strength. I want you to note these are descriptions. He's going to, he's going to run out of descriptions. And every one is, is it began by the word my. My strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, and my God, and my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. You see, what, what changes David's heart in these circumstances, and yours and our, mine, is when we actually look and realize that we have been taken to a place where we now realize we need God. We have been so conditioned by our flesh and by the world to believe that we're self-sufficient that we can work our way through all these issues on our own that every once in a while you know what God is going to do because he loves us he's going to take us to a dark place he's going to take us to one of those places where we can't see a way out and he's going to do that not because he doesn't love us but because he does love us and because we need to see that he is our rock he is our strength he is our refuge he is our fortress and not ourselves or any of our techniques or any of our people we know but him. Guarantee God will take you there sometime and maybe you're there now. Remember, he does it because of his loving kindness. I want to take an implication from this before we move on to Psalm 27 in just a moment. As we think about these struggles and so forth. I want to think for just a moment of, of how we as a church, as God's people, respond to all this. Uh, who, is our, who is our healers today in our society? In, uh, in the book, Losing Our Virtue by David Wells, an excellent book, he suggests through his observations that, that our society looks to two healers of the soul. Two healers. Psychology and advertisement. He suggests, for example, that in the psychological world and self-help world, that people are told to turn to themselves because the answer is within. All we have to do is find the right technique to bring it out. And so the psychological world keeps working on trying to find that right technique. You know what? It's not finding it. Uh, don't, don't be taken in by propaganda. Don't be taken in by the advertisements and so forth. The, uh, our world is not getting better. Our souls are not getting better. 
every statistic out there is telling us they're not getting better. The psychological world has no special magic as much as it talks. And, repeat, and increasingly, as time has gone on, the psychological world has given up on trying to change the hearts of people, and they're giving you pills. Go to a psychiatrist, he says, well, I can't help you, here's a pill. I'll go back later, that pill didn't help, here's another pill. That's the answer, is it? He said the psychological world becomes that, that healer where we look to, but he can't heal. And then there's the advertising world. The advertising world tells us this, if you could buy more stuff and have more experiences, you'll be happy. You'll find it. You just got to buy more stuff. And here's, where, here's our product. You buy it. It'll make you happy. Here's our trip. Here's our cruise. Here's our traveling. You do, you do that, and you're going to solve the problems of your souls. It never works, does it? There's never enough stuff to buy. There's never enough trips to take. There's, ne there's never eno another vacation that's going to do the job. These are not healers of the soul. Sometimes they simply mask the wound. But there is a healer, and it's found in God's Word, God Himself. Let's think about the church. So what does the church tell the world? Let me say this very clearly. The message of the biblical church is radically, radically different than anything the world has to offer. It is so radical the world doesn't get it. It's so radical the world hates it. It's so radical even many Christians skip over it and try other things. But it's a message that will heal the soul. Here's the greatest invitation in all the scriptures. Given by, of course, Jesus himself. And he says this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus promised that. That's his invitation. But often today in our modern church, we skip over those things, and we offer the world exactly what the world is offering them, just in a Christianized form. We'll give you experiences. We'll give you stuff. We'll give you programs. We're simply mimicking what the world is giving. People attend many churches today simply for the goods and the services. We've extended the, the consumer mentality, but my friends, those things will never change your soul. Those are not the healers. The physician of the soul is not experiences, and it's not goods and services. It's not psychology. It's Jesus Christ and his word. Well said in his book, I believe, well, what the spiritually burdened needs is not goods and services. He needs a cross. He does not need experiences. He needs redemption. He does not need to feel better about himself. He needs to come face to face with sin and repent. He does not need an encounter group. He needs to encounter God. And that's as true for the Christian as for the unbeliever as well. If the church does not pro proclaim that, this message, the message of the cross, the message of redemption, the message of repentance, the message of, of truly encountering God, then, uh, then the world has no hope. There's no healer. There's no healer. And Wells goes on to say, for once, folks, we have the opportunity to be so radically different from the world that our message is totally unique because the world doesn't offer anything like it. Let's not capitulate to the world system. Let's give the world exactly what they need. Rather than mimicking our, our world system, we proclaim that Jesus Christ and his Father is the rock. We stand on the rock. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. 
That's our message. Nobody else has that message. Nobody. It's the only healing message. It's the only message that will heal the soul. It's the message that's found in the Word of God itself. And we can help one another with that. Especially at times that are tough for some of us. Going back to Pilgrim's Progress, and I reiterate, if you have my book, please bring it back. <laughs> There's a beautiful portion in that book, toward the end of the book, I, I, I could remember it if I could review it, uh, but at, at a portion in that book, they're, they're almost to the celestial city, where, which is heaven. And they come to this mighty river, he, a Christian and hopeful. And they have to cross that river, but there's no bridge. But they can't get to the celestial city without crossing the river. And so they wade in, and, and Christian is, is panicking early on. He, he, he's going to drown. He's, he's floundering. But hopeful hopeful's doing okay. And he encourages Christian as they try to go through. Finally, as he holds on to Christian and lifts him up. And he says these wonderful words, folks. He says, fear not, brother. I feel the bottom. You know, once in a while, when we can't feel the bottom, we can look to others who can. And according to Galatians chapter 5, we are to lift one another up. We are to strengthen one another maybe at chapter 6, we're to hold one another up. And if we can feel the bottom, if our feet are firmly planted on the truth of God and Christ himself, then we might be able to help others who are floundering. That's what Hopeful did for Christian. That's what we can do for one another. Go over to Psalm 27 now. Just take just a few minutes on this. This great psalm, Psalm 27. When I came here as a young pastor back in the 1800s, Pastor Hellyer had been here for a number of years as my predecessor. I went to the hospital with him often as he kind of trained me in hospital visitation and so forth. And everybody that he left, everybody that he prayed with and we left that room who was in the hospital, he, he quoted the last two verses of this great psalm. And, just, uh, and I thought if this passage is so dear to him that when he passes away I was going to preach this passage at his funeral and I did. Perhaps he loved this psalm so much because it epitomizes life so well. David is living out and explaining two essentials needed by those in despair. Two essentials needed by those in despair. First of all, confident trust. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The evildoers come upon me or came upon me to devour my flesh. My adversaries and my enemies, they stumble and fell. The host encamp against me. My heart will not fear. The war rises against me. In spite of this, I will be confident. Now I want you to note, David turns his eyes off of himself in verse 1 and on to the Lord. He never denies the pressure of his life, as we'll see. He, but he processes those things now through a different grid. And the grid that he processes them through is the provisions of God. In every one of these first six verses, David mentions some kind of trouble. He's not escaping trouble. Life is full of trouble. He says in verse 1, I, I, I fear and I dread. In verse 2, there's evildoers, there's adversaries, there's enemies to, trying to destroy him. In verse 3, there's a host that is encamped around him. In verse 5, he's in the day of trouble. And in verse 6, he has enemies again. But in the midst of all that, 
In verse 3, at the very end, the war rises against me. In spite of this, he says, I will be confident. In spite of those things. Even though they exist, I will be confident. Why is he confident? Because now he sees his God. And because of that, verse 1, he says, I have no fear. He says, I have no dread. Here's a, here's a principle of life. The fear of God drives out the fear of everything else. And unless you have the fear of God, the fears of this world will overwhelm you at some point. The fear of God drives out the fear of everything else. David is talking about that here. Because he saw the Lord, he didn't need to dread verse 1. He knew verse 5. He says that uh, in this verse, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in his secret place of his tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. He's going to take care of me. He's going to hide me if I need to be hid. He's going to put me on a rock if I need to be put on a rock. He's going to give, bring me into his tabernacle if that's needed. He's going to take care of me. Even though I'm still enveloped right now in trouble. He only asked one thing of the Lord in this passage. That's his precious verse 4. Look at it with me. We want to camp out here for just a second. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I, will, I shall seek. One thing. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Remember, He's an Old Testament saint. In the Old Testament, the, the Lord's presence was at the temple and the tabernacle. So keep that in mind on what He's saying here. What is He asking for? His ultimate ambition is not fame or success, or any of the other things that we chase after so, so heartily, his ultimate ambition is to enjoy God. You catch that? He says here in verse 4, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate on that beauty in his temple. Meditating on the beauty of Christ. Have you ever done that? I trust you have. I suggest to you that you do more of it, and I should do more of it. Beholding the beauty of the Lord, to fixate on that through Scripture, not the mystical dream world, but through Scripture, what it says about the Lord, in passages like these, and throughout the Bible, to meditate on His beauty, and His wonder, and His splendor, will reshape the way you think, reshape the way you feel, and reshape the way you live. And if you don't do that, then you're just putting band-aids on your wounds because the salve is the beauty of Christ and the Lord. And David said, if I had one wish, one wish. You ever thought about having a genie show up in the old stories and giving you three wishes? If you ever thought the one wish you would have would be to meditate on the beauty of Christ? That's David's wish here. David is living as we all should be living in the midst of troubles and trials. But now he has one more thing. How about sustaining hope? Not only does he have confident trust, he has sustaining hope. As we go back to verse 7, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. But now look, he again... He's losing, verses 9 through 12, he's losing that confidence in this Lord he's been trusting in. So like us, he vacillates, right? There are times when he's doing really well. And there's other times when he's not doing so well. 
So here he is in the earlier verses seeking the Lord and trusting the Lord. But, but look at verse, starting with verse 9 and we see where he's at by four do nots. Four different times in verses 9 to 12 he says do not. Verse 9, verse nine do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not abandon me nor forsake me. Verse 12, do not deliver me over to my adversaries. Do not, Lord. Please, please don't do these things. Please don't turn from me. Please don't abandon me. Please don't turn me over to the turmoils and the struggles of life. How like David we are, right? Pastor Hellyer, my predecessor, knew these things. I think that's why he quoted that psalm so often at the hospitals. In hospitals, people are often in despair. They're down. They're struggling. And he would quote these words to them. He would remind them of these last two verses of two glorious truths that will see you through the hardest times. First of all, the goodness of the Lord will eliminate the problem of despair. Verse 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He quoted that verse all the time. Now notice here in italics the first part. Some, some Hebrew manuscripts have these first words and some don't. I'm glad the New American Standard translators put them in there because it, it is implied, if it's not exactly uh, certain that if they were there, they're implied. I would have, look, I would have despaired. I would have gone under. I would have given up in the midst of my struggles and my heartaches and my, my phobias and all these things going on in my world, I would despair unless, see it? Unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Did you know that our world is out of control? Have you noticed that? <laughs> and there's not a whole lot you and I can do about it. You can watch your Fox or your CNN or your medias all day long. You're not going to do a thing about it. So get more disturbed. As I said last week, get out of your news silos and get to the scriptures. You'll be a much happier person. You can't change the world very much. You can't change very many things at all. You can't. But it's never, this world and its troubles are never out of the control of God. And he says, although I don't see it right now, although I can't grasp it right now, I believe because I know God that the goodness of the Lord will prevail in the land of the living. It may not be today, may not be in our lifetimes, but ultimately as we return to 1 Corinthians 15 next week, it will come. And David said that's the thing, that's the hope, that's the anchor that pulls me through these dark hours. I believe in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here's one more thing, you won't like this one. You have to wait. I told you you wouldn't like it. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Just wait for the Lord. We have to wait for God's timing. He's not in the same hurry we are necessarily. We've got to let God do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And what are we called, what are we called to do? Wait on the Lord. One of the hardest things you and I do. Let me summarize these last two sermons. What our minds dwell on, my friends, determine how we think and how we feel and how we behave. If we are a utopian, as we looked at last week, believing that everything's going to work out to almost paradise, we'll be constantly frustrated and disappointed 
angry at every roadblock that gets in our way. If we are people that live in despair, we are increasingly fearful as we watch our world be pulled apart by so many things. But if we have the hope of these four interrelated realities, the hope of the gospel, Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins, to take our sins upon him, to offer us the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. If we have the hope in the gospel. If we have that hope in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he really did raise. He is not in a tomb. He's resurrected from the dead. He lives now. And he's coming again. If we have the hope of grace of God, that we're only saved because of God's grace, not because of our efforts, not because of anything we merit, anything we could have possibly done, but because he reached down and in pure grace saved us, loving kindness he saved us. And then the fourth reality is the person of God himself. The greatness, the majesty, the wonder of God that we have unearthed today. The psalmist said God is our fortress and our, and our rock. The world's out of control, but God's not out of control. The Lord orchestrates all things to drive us to recognize something. Now get this, as we pull it together. He orchestrates all things to drive us to the conclusion that without him we are hopeless. We ought to be in despair. If you're not in despair, but, you're not, but you don't know God, then you don't catch reality. You should be in despair. He's orchestrating all things, even among Christians, to drive us to that place where we recognize the only hope is found in Him. Our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. Puritan Richard Baxter said this in one of his books. He says, I really feel sorry for those that don't know Christ. Poor things. I'm sorry for the poor, unhappy world. They have no better things than meat and drink and clothes and house and land and money and lust and play and domineering over others to rejoice in. And he heartily wishes that they had but a taste of the light, delights that the saints have. Have you tasted that the Lord is good this morning? I hope you have. Father, thank you for your precious word that points us straight to our precious Lord and Savior. Father, we, we pray for each person here. Everybody's on their own journey. Some are struggling today. Others are doing well. Some need Christ. Others have known you for a long time. Father, may your spirit take the word, penetrate the heart of every one of us where we need to be, be brought to and to be opened up to and enlightened with. May today be a day of true spiritual encouragement and perhaps in some cases a turning point in lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.